morning, church. So I've always found in my walk that either I'm desperate for him or he will make me desperate for him. (laughs) What a great song. So the book Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire speaks of people freely expressing their hearts, their needs, their desires, and praises to the Lord. Jim Cimbala said, far from being a new invention, this kind of prayer has ancient roots. Can I have the house lights, by the way? This kind of prayer, this desperate prayer, goes back before Christ at Bethlehem, before David, even before Moses set up the tabernacle for worship. The first mention of this kind of desperate prayer is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4.25 says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore him a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Catch this. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. The literal meaning of the Hebrew words that men began to call on the name of the Lord means to cry out. It it means to implore aid. God, I'm desperate for you. Think about that. Up until that time, the people on earth knew God only as creator. They knew that God had made the Garden of Eden and everything else their eye could see. But now, for the first time, men and women began to call on the name of the Lord. Before there was a Bible available, before the first preacher was ordained, before there was a choir formed, a godly strain of men and women gave themselves to calling on the name of the Lord. Cain and his descendants went their own way independent of God, but by contrast, these men and women affirm their utter dependence upon the Lord God by calling out to Him. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we continue in that verse-by-verse study. As you're turning there, let me just catch up real quick. Last week, we talked about how the Lord provided this unlikely redemption And Israel missed it. Paul warns these believers, don't be like them and miss the Lord. Don't put Christ to the test. You may remember in the book of Numbers, we talked about how the people spoke out against God and against Moses. And so the Lord sent these fiery serpents down that anyone who was bit would die. And so then God told Moses, here's your unlikely redemption. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so here's what you do. Go and make a serpent of bronze, put it on a pole, put it out there in the desert. And anyone who's bit by one of these poisonous snakes, if by faith they would look to that brass serpent, they will be saved. And we talked about how it looks so foolish. And I said a couple of times, this is the foolishness of God. And I had someone during the week ask, is God really foolish? 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. No, God is not foolish, but it seems foolish. Because we can't wrap our finite brains around the fact that God would say, 
Look to a brass serpent and be saved. And then later we learn that that was a picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look to Jesus and be saved. Surely that can't be it. God, I got to do acrobats. I got to do all these good works. I got to, I got to, I got to. And God says, you have an eye problem. Look to the cross and be saved. Just as we are saved by faith, so the children of Israel were saved by trusting in God. And so out there in the desert, Paul said they tempted Christ. And we said, well, what does that mean? How did they tempt Christ out in the desert? By complaining and not trusting. Paul went on to talk about our self-sufficiency. and says, your self-sufficiency will cause you to stumble. Don't ever think that you are immune to being just like Israel and tempting Christ and being so self-sufficient that, that you would blaspheme the God of heaven. And then finally, after all the warnings, Paul gives the promise of God that God will always be there and he will always provide a way of escape. And so now this morning, it's kind of ironic that if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10, most commentators give like half a chapter to all three of those chapters together. Because it's kind of one theme throughout all three chapters. Now we have taken six months because your pastor is very verbose. But, <laughs> but this morning, chapter 10, the end of chapter 10 here, Paul kind of goes back to eating that meat that was sacrificed to idols, and he's going to wrap it up with the final conclusion of what was going on there. And so he's going to speak of idolatry, and he's going to end with these words, do everything you do, everything for the glory of God. So if you have your sermon notes, they're in the bulletin, Roman numeral one, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians 10, let's begin with verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, and we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So again, Paul is going to refer to the meat that was sacrificed there at the pagan temple. And in verse 14, he's specifically talking about idolatry. The idolatry not only that Israel did, but the idolatry that's happening at these pagan temples. And he's telling these Christians, flee from that. Don't get involved with that stuff. You may remember in the last section, Paul talked about Israel's idolatry, and now he's saying, listen, as a child of the Most High God, stay out of that pagan stuff. Stay away from it. You see, these Christians did have the liberty to buy meat that was sacrificed at that temple, but he instructs them, don't eat there and flee the idolatry that's happening at that restaurant at the pagan temple. You see, here's the bottom line. Although we have liberties and freedoms to do many things, we need to ask ourselves as Christians, are those things beneficial to us and to our family? Are those a good witness to do those things? We have freedom to do all things. But are, they, are all things profitable? And we're going to get into that more. And notice Paul says, I speak as to wise men. 
Why would he say that? Here he's teaching them like what I would think are basic things. Well, there in your notes, because Corinth placed such a high emphasis on wisdom, Paul is challenging them to judge for themselves what would be the wise thing to do as a follower of Christ in this situation. Again, freedom is such a great privilege, man. I so enjoy that I'm not under some legalistic laws of serving God because I would fail every day, right? We all would fail every day. But Paul is saying, look, you need wisdom to choose those things which are the best. And notice he says, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Partakers. In the Greek, partakers means to share or to participate by implication belong to or fellowship with so if you're eating at that pagan altar you're actually becoming one with the pagans you're actually fellowshipping with the pagans you're actually being one with that group this is what david guzik said just as the christian practice of communion speaks of unity and fellowship with Jesus, so the pagan banquets speaks of unity with demons. And you might go, whoa, wait a minute. He went there. To eat at a pagan temple banquet was to have fellowship with the altar of idols. There in your notes. For Christians to partake of certain liberties is similar to having fellowship at the altar of idols. You see, in Jewish culture, a shared meal demonstrated intimacy and fellowship. And in fact, if you would dip your bread into the same bowl with other people at the table, it actually symbolized becoming one with the rest of the people. So if I invite you over to my home, we go through these ceremonial washings, I have you know, some au jus sitting there in a bowl, I give you some French bread, and we dip in the same bowl. I am showing you that I become one with you. So if I do that in, in a pagan setting, in a pagan temple, that is showing everyone that I have become one with them. So to eat at that table, at that pagan restaurant, it's a level of fellowship and intimacy with other diners. And notice he says, the cup of blessing. And of course he's referring to the cup at the Last Supper of Jesus in Luke 22, where Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so that's what Paul's talking about. And we'll discuss communion at length when we get into the second half of 1 Corinthians 11 because it deals with it so much. There's so many verses on it, so we will really have a, a time of sharing. But understand this. When early Christians took communion, we do it every week. So like AJ said, it, it kind of becomes routine, right? And it can lose some of its meaning and some of its power. But when early Christians took communion, they knew what it meant. They watched Jesus on the cross. They knew what Jesus said at the Last Supper. So when they were taking it, it was such a powerful demonstration that this is my body given to you. This is the cup of my blood, the new covenant I give to you. The early Christians, there was no doubt, they knew what that meant. And so verse 18, those who eat of the sacrifice are partakers of the altar, there in your notes, an idol is nothing. But if you take part of pagan rituals, you are representing yourself as being one with those idols and pagans. 
All right, Roman numeral two. Our allegiance then belongs to the Lord. Look at verse 19. Paul says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You see, even though, again, an idol is nothing, right? They're, all they are are created beings. They're nothing, but a demon can attach himself to some meaningless idols if people will worship it. When I go into a certain restaurant, and you can just imagine what kind of restaurant I'm talking about, but I see an idol sitting there, it means nothing to me. It doesn't bother me at all. I love that food. I'll, I'll eat the food because that little fat thing sitting on the shelf means absolutely nothing to me. <laughs> However, if I get up in the middle of my meal and I go give that thing a gift or I present it or I worship it somehow, now I'm actually aligning myself or agreeing with demonic forces. And, and, and so Guzik says, does he now say that idols are actually demons? No. But he says that demonic spirits take advantage of idol worship to deceive and enslave some people. There in your notes. Without knowing it, idol worshipers are glorifying demons in their sacrifice. Listen to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 32.16. He said, they, meaning Jerusalem, provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. So these verses here in the Old Testament again demonstrate that false gods... Demons will attach themselves to these false gods, even though idol means nothing to us. You see, demonic activity is associated with every false religion in the world. So many times we think, well, they just, they're kind of skewed on their believing, but they go to church. These chairs go to church every week and they're not going to heaven, okay? <laughs> just so you know. I'm pretty sure at the rapture, they're not going to be in the middle of the air. Just saying. Jesus himself said this in Luke eleven twenty three, 23. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground. You're with me or against me, Jesus said. And by the way, Satan owns the fence. Satan owns that fence. And, and see, the devil desires people to worship anything. He doesn't care that you don't worship him by name. Worship anything that's not of Jesus Christ. He doesn't care. Because then that worship's not going to Jesus. And you know, so many times, most of us in this room would realize Ouija boards have stuff attached to it. So we would stay as far away from Ouija boards as possible. But how about other things? And it's, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit because it's in the name. How about horror scopes? You know, 
I know so many Christians that think, oh, it's just harmless fun. No, it's not. It's garbage. Any supposed magic that can tell the future is not of God. God alone knows the future. So if you worship a false god or an idol, it's the same thing as aligning yourself up with Satan himself. And so Paul contrasts the table of demons used for these pagan mills, and he's using a little logic here, and Paul's trying to tell him, think for a minute, if eating at the Lord's table has meaning, which we know it does, then eating something at this satanic pagan place has meaning too. Stay away. So he's comparing the meal here with the rituals of the Jewish meals as well. And, you know, we won't get into it, but certain denominations say that, you know, that communion's a time for sacrifice of sins, and it's not biblically supported at all. But what he's saying is these demons take advantage of man's ignorant and self-serving worship. If you belong to Christ, turn your phone off and... <laughs> And if you belong to Christ and participate in these events, you'll provoke the Lord to jealousy. There in your notes, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I see everyone reaching for their phone. That's awesome. <laughs> see, I plan that. I'll pay that guy something later. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of our worship and fellowship. He's the only one. Moses said in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. And, and many of us would say, wait, 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 God's jealous? We'll get to that. But there in your notes, in Exodus 20, God contrasts his passion and his love for his people with the sin of those who chase after false gods and idols. You see, the Lord described being jealous in the context of idols. You would say, how can a perfect loving God have jealousy? Well, God is not a man. So he's not jealous like I'm jealous. He's not jealous like you're jealous. Why is God jealous of false gods? Here it is. It's very, very simple. I created you to be a masterpiece. I gave you everything that was good and pure. I want you to have the abundant life. And through your sin and idol worship, you are hurting yourself. And I'm jealous for you. That's the jealousy of God. It's not like a husband's jealous of his wife. It's not like that at all. God is jealous because he made you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And you're hurting yourself. And that's why he's jealous. And so the Corinthian Christians claim the right to eat this meat. And what he's saying, what they're saying is, we're strong Christians, so we can eat the meat and it won't bother us at all. And Paul says, are you stronger than God? Paul flat out asks him, are you stronger than God? And so Roman numeral three Conscience through the Holy Spirit should guide you. Look at verse 23. Here's another misquoted verse so many people would throw out there. All things are lawful for me. Stop there. All means all, and that's all all means. All things are lawful for me. Let's pray and go home. See ya. 
all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one, and this is the verse I'd love to hear you quote instead of all things are lawful for me. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. He goes on and says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever's set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? So all things are lawful for me. You understand we're no longer under the law. But not all things are helpful. Uh, again, these Christians are so focused on their rights and their freedoms at any cost. Christ came to set me free, and if the Son sets me free, I'm free indeed. I can do whatever I want. You're not the boss of me. Yeah, but I'm dead to myself. I'm dead to my sin, and I'm alive in Christ, so what does that look like? I'm not under a new set of laws. The law has been fulfilled However, not everything is beneficial. Just because I can do something does not mean I ought to do it. Paul said in Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by another. There in your notes, at the moment of salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit. So if the powerful Spirit of God lives within you, the proof of the presence in your life will be a change that produces godliness. And you see, these Christians were not seeking the well-being of anybody but themselves, and, and insisting on their rights, they were actually being selfish. And then instead of going deeper in their commitment to Christ, God, take me deeper, deeper than I've ever been. You know, I want to be deep in Christ. Well, then die. And we would all say, but I don't want to die. Then you really don't want to go deeper. Tyndale said, Christians can enjoy the liberty of spirit before God, but only if they can maintain a good conscience doing it. You know, Paul said to Governor Felix in Acts 24, 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. There in your notes, the Lord installed sort of an alarm clock within us to help us, which is called our conscience. And I've preached on this several years ago, but an alarm clock does two things, right? My alarm clock at 2 in the morning better stay silent. <laughs> but at 4.30, my alarm clock should make a lot of noise and wake me up. 
And that's what your conscience should do. When you're walking in the Spirit and in the freedom of the Spirit, and there's nothing wrong with that, your conscience ought to be quiet. But the moment you kind of step out of line and, and the Spirit is beginning to be grieved in your life, that conscience should say, Wake up! Wake up! See, a conscience is something that, you know, provokes the standards of right and wrong within me with the Holy Spirit and my conscience working together. I don't have to go and say, Let's see, is this wrong in the mind? The Spirit Himself will speak to my conscience and say, that's not right. You know, everyone says, well, I'm just not sure. I don't know about you, and I don't want to say that's baloney, but when I am two steps over the line, sweet Jesus, the Holy Spirit is loud. That alarm clock is so loud, and I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that, ooh, I know what I'm doing. God loves me. And he corrects me every time I get this far over the line. There in your notes, as Christians, we keep our consciences clean by following the Lord and keeping our relationship with him in good standing. And we do this by the application of the word and the renewing of our mind. And again, the Holy Spirit and our conscience kind of work together. And again, you know, I know there are those with weak consciences, but... Man, when I step out of line, God is so sure to correct me so quickly. I don't have to ask anybody. And then I'm also married. (laughs) I'm not going to look over there, but anyway. (laughs) So Paul says, let no one seek his own. But each one, the other is well-being. And and, and again, we should consider how our actions will harm others, right? Even if something's okay. If I have a weaker brother that doesn't understand, you know, then it's okay. I can forego my freedoms, my rights, whatever. I don't need them that bad. And, And so Paul is saying, it's fine to buy the meat at that meat market, at the pagan temple. Because you don't know whether it was offered idols or not. However, to eat there, to sit down and eat there, you are fellowshipping with people, becoming one-minded with these people, and you need to stop it. But, you know, the meat loses all religious significance if we don't know. An idol is nothing. You offered it to an idol, if I don't know, give me the steak. I'm good with that. And, And notice Paul says, asking no questions. Why ask? If you don't know... You invite me to your house and you put a T-bone in front of me, I'm not going to ask you, gee, did you offer that to something? I'm going to ask, is that rare? (laughs) I mean, that's it. An idol is nothing. And again, Paul's not giving a New Testament law. He's simply saying, hey, for their conscience sake, for your conscience sake, don't ask, eat it. Don't even ask. And and then he quotes Psalm 24.1 which was used as a blessing in Jewish families before a meal and all these things. And this is kind of answering to anyone who would say, how powerful is an idol? Psalms 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. You see, here's the deal. That cow belonged to the Lord when it was eating grass. And that cow, now that it's in the butcher shelf, 
still belongs to the Lord. Ask no questions. Enjoy your steak. And, and then notice this, and this kind of blew me away a little bit. If anyone who does not believe invites you to dinner, eat whatever's set before you, unless it's liver. <laughs> so again, if an unbeliever invites you, don't ask. Enjoy the meal. And this is, this is what hit me there in your notes. It's ironic that Paul does not prohibit eating with non-Christians. He only speaks against fellowshipping at the places where the pagan practices happen. You know, in chapter 5, we learn, don't even eat with someone that's under church correction who refuses to repent. And here Paul says, but you can eat at a non-believer's house. I think that is so cool. You see, God is certainly glorified when we enjoy what he's given us. He created everything. And he definitely created T-Bone, so that is so cool. What a great advocate for freedom Paul was. But what he's saying is love is so much more important the sake of love is why we do what we do. It's so much more important. And then he says, if anyone says to you this stuff was sacrificed to idols, for their weak conscience sake, for the example, and for your own. No thank you. No thank you. Not that it has anything attached to it, but we do it for conscience sake. And, and here's, the, here's the deal. It's not the person who thinks that they have so much freedom that's the mature Christian. It's the person who doesn't have to use all their freedoms for others' sake, that's the mature Christian. And so, no, Roman numeral four, whatever you do, look at verse 31. Therefore, because of all that, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. There it is, that they may be saved. That's why I do what I do. Glorify God, and my example is that others may be saved. To the church at Ephesus, Paul said in Ephesians 4.21, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off, Concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old man. This is speaking of getting undressed out of those old grave clothes. Put them off and put on Christ. And how much... Of what we do, should we do for Christ? How much? Paul said, whatever you do. Whatever you do. And I've often talked about the tithe, right? We, a lot of people love to talk about the tithe. So whatever I do. So I should give God 10% of my time. 10% of my devotion. Right? Because that, that's the law, right? I should give him 10%. But Paul says, give him everything. Whatever you do. And then I would ask someone who's so legalistic about that 10%, do you even give him 10% of your time? Because 24 hours in a day, how many of those hours are you sleeping? How many of those hours are you at work and whatever, whatever? See, if you're the new person in Christ, you are serving him in everything you do. But if you're trying to just give him the 10%, ask yourself, are you really giving him 10% of what you do? There in your notes, the purpose 
of our lives isn't to see how much we can get away with and still be Christians. But as sold-out followers of Christ, the purpose of our life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Remember Paul's words back in chapter 6, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. And, And if I keep this thought in the back of my mind that I belong to another, it's easy to serve the Lord. There in your notes, since we have surrendered our lives to Christ, whatever we do, we should do for the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do all. And then notice Paul says, in giving no offense. No offense is talking about causing others to stumble. Paul's desire, his whole life's desire, was to answer God's call and see more people saved. And so let's get practical this morning. In all we do, do for the glory of God. Why? Great question. Galatians 2.20 is why. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Tell me what a crucified person can do. They're dead. I've been crucified in Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who live. But then the good side. Moses recorded in Deuteronomy 14.2, The Lord has chosen you as his treasured possession. There it is. There's the reason. Because the Lord has chosen you. And remember what I started with, Genesis 4.26, And as for Seth, to him also a son was given, and he named him Enosh. Then man began to call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord, to implore aid, to cry out, to be desperate for him. And, and Pastor Simbala said, think about that. Up until then, they only know, knew God as creator. He had created a garden and everything else, but now they know this God intimately and personally, and they're calling out to God. Do you know that God is attracted to weakness? Do you know that? And that is so contrary to what I was taught growing up, right? Suck it up. Don't be a baby. I'll give you something to cry about, that sort of thing. But God is attracted to weakness. Because weakness shows that we depend on him and we love him and we trust him and he's the only one I can call out to. And so men at that point began to call on the name of the Lord. When's the last time your prayer life looked like that? Call on the name of the Lord. God, if you don't show up, we're done. We're doomed. What are we going to do? Call on the name of the Lord. This almighty creator God loved you so much that he sent Jesus that we could have a real intimate relationship with him. And again, he's so attracted to weakness because that proves that you believe him, you trust him, and you know that he'll show up when you cry out to him. You were bought with a price and he loves you. And God created us, he owns us, and he loves us. And so now, as the Westminster Catechism says, the purpose of our life, this is the purpose of our whole life, 
is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Therefore, because of that, whether you eat or you drink, do all for the glory of God. Do it all. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That doesn't sound like a big ogre in heaven that wants to just slaughter me, does it? Enjoy Him forever. Cry out in desperation because He wants to answer. He wants to prove that He's there. And then enjoy Him forever. Man, what does that look like? Just basking in His love, basking in His glory. He loves you. And and so Paul is saying, again, this isn't a rule. Whatever you do, do for God or he's going to crush you. No, whatever you do, do for the glory of God because he loves you. He's proven it. He's bought you with a price. And now, out of a heart of thanksgiving and love, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man, that sounds like an intimate relationship to me. That doesn't sound like a legalistic God. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. And every week we have some folks in the back who would love to pray for you. And I just want that to be our heart, church. I really want that to be our heart, that, that we would just glorify God and enjoy him. Enjoy him. You know, that, that's not running from him or fearing that he's going to crush us. That's, that's enjoying him. I enjoy spending time with him. I enjoy hanging out with him. I enjoy getting to know him. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, you're such a good God. Lord, that not only did you create and we sin against you, but you sent Jesus that there would be a way that you'd break down that wall of separation, that we could have a way to not only glorify you, but enjoy you forever. Father, I pray that you would just make that our heart's desire. That in everything we do, whether it's eating or drinking or working or coming to church or staying home or whatever it is, that we would do all for the glory of God and that we would learn to enjoy you forever. Perfect fellowship, intimate relationship. God, touch our hearts. Help us to worship you now. We praise you for who you are. Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice. And Lord, teach us that in our freedoms to stay away from those things which are harmful and not make you jealous. Lord God, because we are your masterpiece. Bless us now. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. And all God's kids said, Amen. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.